Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Zach. And I'm Melissa, and we are very excited to have President Neil Kashkari joining us here today. Hi, how are you guys doing? Doing really good. Good, thanks. Neil Kashkari is currently the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, but at age 43, he's already had an impressive career in a number of sectors. The son of immigrants, Kashkari graduated from the University of Illinois with a degree in mechanical engineering. After working for a few years in the field of aerospace, he got an MBA from Wharton and began working for Goldman Sachs, monitoring tech developments in San Francisco. From there, he was brought to the Treasury Department by Secretary Hank Paulson, where the team oversaw the 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent TARP bailout. After leaving the Treasury, Mr. Kashkari worked for the investment firm PIMCO as their global head of equities before running for California governor in 2014. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Neil. Uh, one of the most interesting things that we've heard from other speakers on our show is this concept of inflection points. So times during your personal or professional life when you decided that you needed to make a change. Could you maybe outline some of those for us? Sure. One of the big changes was when I left Goldman Sachs and I went to the Treasury Department. Uh, the CEO of my firm, Hank Paulson, had just been picked to be Treasury Secretary. I'd always had an interest in government. And so basically, I cold called him and said, I want to come work for you. I don't care if I'm going to lick envelopes. I just want to come and serve. And you know, by the grace of God, he said yes, and I went to Treasury. Now, people at my firm thought I was crazy. I was four years out of business school, early in my career, doing well, giving up my career, my lucrative career at Goldman Sachs to go to government. But I thought they were crazy because I thought this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to get to serve and to learn. Uh, and what a great opportunity. And so that was probably a very important inflection point for me. And then a second one was leaving PIMCO, uh, which is also a very lucrative career, to decide to run for governor of California. I had this longing to get back into public service, and running for office was seemed like the best way I could find to do it. And so it was just diving in the deep end, and uh, and I'm really happy I did it. Thank you so much. Um, I was hoping we could explore a little bit further your time at the Treasury. So you were hired on as a generalist working on, it sounds like, everything from environmental policy to sort of infrastructure development. Yes. What, what did you do there? Do you have some anecdotes that you could share with our listeners? Sure. The first six months I was there, so I was 32 years old at the time, I started working on energy policy. Uh, the se- Treasury Secretary is a big proponent of alternative energy. So we were coming up with an alternative energy plan to reduce the economic risk of oil. And I remember this is a, uh, interesting interesting for me. Um, we come up with a plan that we had to present first, uh, present to the president of the United States, President Bush, to get his approval for. Mm-hmm. But about a week before the presentation of the president, Secretary Paulson had to present it to Vice President Cheney, just to, as a courtesy to show him what we were going to present the president. So I went over to the White House early to brief somebody else in the White House about what the Treasury Secretary was going to tell the vice president. Five minutes before the meeting with Vice President Cheney, Hank Paulson called me and said, there's an issue that's come up at Treasury. I can't go to the meeting with the vice president. You're on your own. Good luck. I was terrified. I mean, my heart was pounding through my chest. You know, I'd heard all these, Dick Cheney is characterized in the press as this very scary figure. Mm. And I'd read all that. And so I was terrified. I made the presentation. The truth is he could not have been nicer to me. He could not have been more gracious. It was a very good meeting. I didn't convince him of advocating for alternative energy, but I appreciate the fact that he was uh, very respectful to me as I made my presentation. Mm-hmm. That's something that I, I still remember strongly to this day. Yeah. Can you talk more about um, like your 
or I guess how you took on such a big role at Treasury, because um, um, a lot of been a lot of stuff has been written after you've left, um, after uh, Secretary Paulson left, about how much faith he put in you and how much um, responsibility you had, especially with the TARP plan. Um, and you said that you just called him up, like the executive of one of the biggest investment banks in the world, um, and he said, "Okay, like I mean, it's it's not a random chance. Like, what what do you think you've done, or or what do you what sort of value do you think you added?" Um, that got you that responsibility? Well, remember, when I first went to Treasury, I just went as an aide to the Treasury Secretary. I was not responsible for the TARP. There was no crisis at that point. So that's why he gave me energy policy to work on because that was not, frankly, that was not a very important part of the Treasury Secretary's responsibility. It was more or less a side project for him. Mm. But that's how I proved myself to him. I did a good job. I earned his respect and his trust. And then I got more responsibility. So the lesson from it is, you know, do your best in whatever is given to you. Deliver. And the people who you're working for will see that and say, wow, this person delivered. I'm going to give this person more responsibility and more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so my first year to a treasury is really when I earned his trust so that when the financial crisis hit, he turned to me as one of his uh, key key people. Mm-hmm. Moving on to a little bit later in your career, <clears throat> it sounds like you or the Washington Post at least wrote an article about your sort of detox from Washington. Um after the sort of TARP program, and it sounds like you were chopping wood and you were building sheds. <laughs> and we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about sort of the value of that for you um, and sort of getting away from, from Washington. Sure. So I had, uh, up until recently, I had a home in the mountains in Lake Tahoe, and I love the mountains. And so getting back out into the mountains was a great way to just get away from the stress and intensity of the crisis and the politics. And when I was running the TARP, I was 35 at the time, again, not very long out of business school. And I would have to go up in front of Congress and Republicans and Democrats were really angry about the financial crisis and about the TARP and about the bailouts. And I was the front of it. For in many cases, they were giving venting on me, which was a lot for me to take. Now, I'm proud of the fact that I maintained my composure. I think I answered their questions reasonably well. Um, and I think I represented us well. And so I'm happy about that. But getting away from all of that and just getting politics and the intensity of that behind me was important before I re-entered the private sector. So I did that for about nine months or so, and then I started working at PIMCO. This is another quick follow-up about uh, sort of the aftermath of TARP, but what is it like to watch yourself be portrayed in a movie? <laughs> uh, it's uh, interesting. The The man who played me, I met with him. He asked to see me, and I met with him before he uh, filmed the movie. He took it very seriously. He had studied a lot. He saw the same testimonies and speeches and read everything he could. My only criticism, if I could add, is that I thought he played me too soft. Like he was very nice, he's very gentle. I can be nice and gentle, but I can be tough when I need to be. And I don't think that that was captured. <laughs> Similarly, William Hurt played Hank Paulson in the movie, and he played Hank Paulson way too soft. Okay. Now, because he met Hank after the crisis was over, and Hank was relaxed. If you saw Hank during the crisis, <laughs> he was not relaxed. Yeah, and, and what is that like? I mean, you, essentially, you're small. In the movie, it's only like three or four people, really. Um, and you're essentially responsible for making sure the world economy doesn't shut down. Like, what was that feeling like? Um, and was there a moment when that sort of crystallized for you? Well, it was more than just three or four people. The movie had to shrink it down to a few characters. And so there were more than that, probably two or three times as many. Uh, and the nice thing is you knew you were with people who all shared the same goal, mm-hmm. all committed to doing whatever it takes to stabilize the economy. So that, in some sense, you're part of a team. And that's great. And you've got people like Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke that we had great faith in leading us. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, really important. But you also realize that if we fail, 
there are grave consequences for the country. And so you yeah. feel enormous pressure. And I was sleeping in my office and it was a, I'll never go through anything in my life that has the intensity of that. And I'm glad about that. Hmm. Now, you just finished with an ATH talk. The ATH, of course, is an institution at CMC where we bring in speakers like yourself. Um, and one of the things you talked about was um, how when you were setting up the team for the TARP program or the TARP, um, you made sure that everyone was there because they were committed to public service. Um, what What's your motivation behind public service? Like, why do you care about other people or why do you want to do something that um, helps other people? Especially nope. for someone, sorry, especially okay. for someone like coming from um, like the banking sector where a lot of people would say they, that other, like people in that sector maybe don't care as much about other people. Well, I, uh, I think about my own background growing up as a kid, son of immigrants. You know, my parents came here from India 50 or so years ago and all the opportunities that I've had because I was able to get a good education. You know, my father was a professor of engineering, dedicated his research to try to reduce hunger around the world. He actually, one of my memories of childhood was when I was in high school, he got, a pres he got a, an award from President George Herbert Walker Bush for his work trying to end hunger. Right. So he dedicated his life to trying to make a difference. And so I think I probably got the bug watching him and listening to him and have tried to find my own way. And for me, it's just I want to make as I want us all to make as big a difference as we possibly can in the short time that we have. And that to me is for me is more fulfilling than just having a big checking account. During your ATH talk, you sort of outlined the way that you interviewed um, applicants because you said during this time period you brought on, I think you said 140 um, new employees and you had a particular interview question um, that you used to screen and I was hoping you could share that with our listeners. Sure. Uh, it was simply, I want to get a sense of why are the people here. So I'd literally say this, if you come to work for me on the TARP, you're going to be working no fewer than six days a week, 12 to 15 hours a day for a lot less money than you've been making on Wall Street or in the private sector. You're going to probably face a lot of criticism for what you're doing. You're going to be sitting in a cube. Are you really sure you want to do this? And uh, amazing how many people said, you know what? Now is not really the right time. But those who said, yes, I know what I'm signing up for and I'm in, they were there for the right reasons. And if you mm -hmm. put a team together of people who were there for the right reasons, all committed to the same goal, there's almost nothing you can't accomplish. And so I'm most proud of the team that we built and the fact that they worked so well together. And literally, politics had nothing to do with it. We didn't care. Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever. We just cared that you were there for the right reasons. So as a follow-up to that, I mean, how do you screen now, right? Because back then there was sort of this crisis, and you could say it's going to be six days a week, and that's, that's kind of a good way to tell, right? Yeah. But then how do you sort of screen for that commitment to public service when there isn't necessarily a crisis going on in the moment? No, that's a good question, and it's not easy. Uh, but you look at the body of what somebody has done in their careers, and I think the bar is higher. If we're going to hire somebody, let's say for the Fed, who's coming out of the private sector, who's never worked in, at the Fed, we're going to want to test it and say, have you really thought this through? Why exactly do you want to do this? What do you hope to accomplish? How will you measure success? And when I hire somebody, I'm not expecting them to commit the rest of their career to public service, but I don't want someone to come and then six months later say, well, you know what? This wasn't such a good fit for me because there are huge costs to us to all of a sudden have to go find somebody else and retrain that person and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I think the Fed as an institution does a good job of attracting people who have a genuine interest in public service. And I think that that's one of the real strengths of the institution. Um, we want to talk more about um, something that was um, the California governor race. Um, now, that was a, a huge project. It's a huge challenge because California is, of course, very democratic. 
Um, what was your motivation behind that? Presumably it was the sort of public service side, but um, why California and why start off with the governorship? Well, um, I've lived in California up until moving to Minnesota most of my adult life. So California was home for me. So there's no other state that would, would make sense for me to pursue public service. And as I looked around the state, I didn't see any credible candidates on my side who were ready to run. And if I'd seen them, maybe I would have supported them instead of running myself. And when I looked at the challenges that I ran on, I ran on a platform of economic opportunity. So jobs, literally my slogan was jobs and education, that's it. And I looked at the huge challenges California has in terms of unemployment and disparities and education. And I said, if I actually want to make a difference on these issues, how can I do it? Really, the only way I could see doing it was as being governor of California. I don't think being a, a sole state assemblyman or a sole state senator was really going to move the needle. And I didn't see anybody else running. So I said, well, all right, I'll, nobody else is going to do it. I'll do it. Hmm. We were hoping you could share some stories from the campaign trail. I mean, what is it like to sort of mobilize that kind of campaign so quickly? You know, it's really tough. Um, uh, the hardest part was a lot of, uh, of my party, so Republicans had given up hope in California. And so just telling people, listen, I'm going to go charge up this hill. I need your help. I need your support. And people would say, oh, you're crazy. No one can win. And I say, look, simple. If I have a choice of being hopeless like you or delusional, I'll pick delusional all day long. <laughs> you can be hopeless. I'm going to charge up this hill. So it required uh, enormous individual motivation and determination to just keep driving forward every day. But I also got to meet the widest range of people I ever met in my life, everything from billionaires to sleeping in a homeless shelter. I lived homeless for seven days during the middle of my campaign mm -hmm. to highlight the lack of jobs in different parts of the state. It was a, it was an extraordinary experience, an eye-opening experience. And so I feel grateful that I was able to meet this huge range of people that represent, you know, they're all important people in our in this state and people in our country. And I never would have had that experience otherwise. I, I definitely want to talk more about that because I actually um, started following your campaign um, from outside of Chicago um, when I was in high school. And I didn't even know I was going to be in college in California. Um can you tell people more about what that project, that video was, and um, share some of the experience about it? Um, and then we can ask some more questions about that. Sure. So my, again, I, my slogan was jobs and education, that's it. And I wanted to highlight the lack of jobs in parts of the state. So I picked the highest unemployment rate city in California, which was Fresno, around 10% unemployment at the time. And it was a little experiment. I was going to go to Fresno with $40 in my pocket and try to get a job maybe washing dishes or packing boxes or something like that, washing cars, and then demonstrate how hard it is to live making minimum wage in Fresno. But we didn't know what would happen. And I had a cameraman with me at different times. Well, it turned out I wasn't able to get a job. I, I walked all over the city trying to find employment, and nobody would, there was nobody hiring at all. And pretty soon I was out of money. And so then the question was now, and by the way, I'm sleeping on the street the whole time because I don't have enough money to get a hotel room or, or rent a room somewhere. Mm -hmm. So it was other homeless people who said, oh, there's a shelter. It's not an overnight shelter, but they provide meals to homeless people during the day. You can turn there for food, which was a lifesaver. So I went to that same place to get a meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But then my job search got much harder because I was limited to looking for a job where I could walk from the shelter and back in time for my next meal, which now basically meant it was impossible for me to find a job in the city of Fresno. Mm -hmm. I also had planned to sleep in the area where all the homeless congregate, but it wasn't safe. I mean, I did not feel comfortable even the first night sleeping there. So I picked safer, what seemed like safer parts of the city. But then five out of six nights, I was awakened by either the police or security 
saying you're not allowed to sleep here. You got to move along. So even getting a night's sleep ended up being very, very difficult without with you know being worried about am I going to get woken up or the cops coming and whatnot. So uh, those are all that's a rich set of experiences I never could have imagined, except for the fact that I went and did it. Mm-hmm. And then we created a little video out of it, showcased it, a ten minute video that I think is probably still on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was a that was a key moment in the campaign for me to get the jobs message message hit it home. Yeah. And especially now, a lot of people say that like, um, like someone who like is like came from a banking from a banking job or with a lot of money wouldn't be able to like understand that it's sort of experience. Do you think it's possible to convey the experience of homeless people in like a 10 minute video or with like stories? Or do you think it's something that you have to live Um, or or yeah, I guess is there like an informational gap there? I think there's an informational gap with all of us. We all have our own experiences and it's you never really know what it's like unless you really live it. Like for me, I lived it for a week and I always knew if I got into trouble, I could always, you know, leave. I right. could always say, I know I need help. And my, my campaign staff would come rescue me, so to speak. So it was never that real. Mm-hmm. But this was as close as I could get uh, for not truly being a homeless person. So I think we all have to do our best to try to walk in someone else's shoes and see what struggles they're facing. And hopefully that can help shape our view on life and our approach to policy going forward. So do you think that you'll run again? <laughs> you know, never say never. Um, I have no plans anytime soon. I'm really enjoying the Fed. I'm young enough that in 20 years, maybe I could consider running again, but uh, no time before then. I was curious, um, when you were running, you were sort of branding yourself as a different kind of Republican. And I was hoping you could speak a little bit to the future of the Republican Party in California. Do you think that's going to be a shift? Is it moving away from the National Party? Or how would you sort of describe that? You know, honestly, I don't know because I've been I've lived in Minnesota now for the last year and a half or so. So I'm very far removed from anything political related. In the Fed, we don't get involved in any politics, any campaigns at all. Mm-hmm. So the truth is, I don't know. Um, I do feel like even though at the time, the Republican Party was 28% registered Republicans in the state of California. Mm-hmm. I think it's gone down since then. I earned 40% of the vote. And so I feel like even though we didn't have a lot of money to get our message out, the people who heard the message generally liked the message. And the message wasn't partisan. It was economic opportunity. But that, that's, a, that's a message that people on both sides of the aisle, I think, can get behind. Okay. Um, well, I think we have time for one more question. And this is the same question that we end every podcast with. Uh-oh. Um, and it's, what is your personal definition of success? And how would you help uh, college students define success for themselves? My personal definition of success is I want to have the biggest possible impact I can in the short time that I have. You know, we all live here for a short time and let's, I want to have as big a positive impact as I can. And that's how I judge success. Am I having a, an impact and could I be having a bigger impact? And so I think for college students, you got to figure out what makes you tick. Figure out what gets you up in the morning and what you're excited about and then do that. Don't try to, don't try to live up to my goals. Figure out your own goals and then you judge for yourself if you're living up to them or not. Mm. Well, unfortunately, that's all the hot time we have for today. Thank you so much, Neil, for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. Thank you. Appreciate it.